All right, we are back. Mr. McMillan insists that I, I, I make mention of, of why it is I'm, I'm not my usual peppy self at the moment. And, you know, from the inside looking out, I can't really tell that I'm not my usual peppy self. Although it is with great amusement that I will sometimes listen to um, episodes of, of this program, which are on our website, radioparallax.com. And I can tell I was having a bad day in retrospect. And I guess the truth be told, I'm having a, a bit of a bad day today, having lost a long time uh, a pet, a very wonderful cat of the last dozen years, who was possibly the best dispositioned cat I've ever known. Mr. Mullen and I would both marvel at the fact that three-year-olds would approach this cat, pick it up in their arms, and carry it, and the cat would let it. That is not your typical feline response. Losing a pet is, is always tough, but when it's really an exceptionally great animal, it's, it's, just, it's just that much tougher. She may well be the smartest cat I ever had as well, and I'm really sorry she's gone. All right, let's see if we can get back into the swing of things here and get the blood pumping with uh, a little bit more of this rant on the tech companies and how they think they own the world, which, of course, they're in the, biz- they are in the, in the process of buying up the world. In, in no small part by addicting us, literally addicting us to their technologies. But the question is, whatever happened to how our lives was, were going to be radically transformed for the better by the fact, because technology was decentralized, one could turn in work from home. It was predicted for many years that commutes would be a thing of the past. You don't have to get in your car and drive 35 miles or 100 miles to go to work when you can do your job at home. Well, like a lot of things the tech industry has held out, you know, as a promise for a better life, that one has gone into reverse. Evidently, as I understand it, one of these tech company heads decided a few years back that they weren't getting as much production out of their people as they would if they were on site being supervised. Twitch Ms. Merlin adds a duh. Nevertheless, people are back in their cars driving to work to sit at a computer terminal, not unlike the one they have at home. I never fell for it, but my understanding is a lot of people in Silicon Valley who who really like to believe, you know, the press of Silicon Valley, um, thought that electronic medical records were going to really revolutionize medicine. A person like myself, a practicing physician, would have never assumed that that was the case. And in fact, it turned out to be and continues to be a gigantic fiasco. Anyway, that's enough about tech. Let's talk about sexual harassment. I have to confess to to the listenership of this program that, that one of us stands accused of putting his hand on a woman's back to console her, after which she objected. Yes, apparently Mr. McMillan made the exact same mistake as Garrison Keillor, and I had to fire him. But since I can't do the show without him, I immediately rehired him. Yes, lucky Mr. McMillan. Not so lucky Garrison Keeler. You know, that that was that was his explanation of, of, of what happened, and we don't have any other one. Wait, it's worse. Garrison Keeler, one reported incident, and he's fired. Fired? 
no sensitivity counseling, no day in court, fired. Now, you know, if you're going to throw out due process and the concept of being innocent until established as guilty, then, then this is good. This is great. Fire all these guys. Now, the truth is, we have no doubt that a lot of a lot of these people out there accused are guilty as sin and should be slammed pretty hard. On the other hand, is it not possible that uh, some of these men are innocent? They stand simply accused, but isn't it possible some are innocent? Again, Garrison Keeler? Really? <sighs> I don't know. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? Current of the Week magazine is a good week last week for losers with the imminent opening in Los Angeles of the Museum of Failure. The museum will feature more than 100 failed inventions such as Google Glass and is intended to help humanity accept failure, learn from it, and truly achieve progress. Well, on the other hand, a bad week last week for delusions with reports that President Donald Trump had told the Republican senator and aides he's, quote, no longer sure, unquote, it's his voice on the infamous Access Hollywood tape bragging about grabbing women by the you-know-what. The president is no longer sure that's his voice. Really? He's, he's never denied he said it, and, and is st- still not denying that, but he's just not sure that's his voice? Hmm. And it was an ugly week last week for flat earthers with the news that the limousine driver, Mad Mike Hughes, is fighting with the government for the right to fire himself 1,800 feet above the Mojave Desert in a homemade steam-powered rocket. This is an effort to prove that the earth is flat. Mr. Hughes has billed his debut flight as the first step toward ultimately photographing earth from outer space. Well, that's, yeah, that's going to take a little bit more than a... 1,800-foot hop, proving that previous photos showing the round planet were faked. I don't believe in science, Hughes said. And no, we have no confirmation that the president has hired Mad Mike Hughes to investigate the question of whether it's his voice on the tape or not. We we just don't know. You will recall our previous joke that this man was going to be appointed as the head of NASA by President Trump. And it was a, a good... But ugly week last week for a Virginia bobcat with the news that a Virginia woman who thought she'd hit something on her drive to work had a bit of a shock when she got out of her car an hour later and found a live hissing bobcat embedded in the grill of her Toyota Prius. Animal rescue workers sedated the wild cat, which had been stuck in the grill for at least 50 miles, and slowly cut the 19-pound feline free. Remarkably, the bobcat suffered only minor cuts and bruises from its ordeal. Said an animal rescuer, he was completely fine. No word from the bobcat, who must have lost several of his lives during that one. And let's see if we can't pop out of current events, which are oftentimes a bit of a downer, and instead see if we can look back in time and and find something to be joyous about. And I think that... A great example of this is in the world of science, as noted in New Scientist magazine, the November 25th issue. Their people section took a look at back at how 
The view we have of planet Earth was radically changed by a man named Dan McKenzie. And I think this is worth a few of our minutes, because frankly, as late as the late 60s, geology had really no idea what the hell was going on. We knew volcanoes and earthquakes tended to come together in certain locations. We had no idea why. Mountains popped up here and there in the Earth. We had no idea why. Now, the shapes of the continental landmasses did suggest to some people, notably Alfred Wegener back in the early 1900s, that, well, maybe the continents are drifting like giant icebergs floating on the ocean. Wegener took a look at the outline of Africa and South America and said, man, those fit. Not only that, their rock types and fossils matched up in ways that suggested the two continents had once been joined. When I first noted this in grade school, I assumed that was the case. And luckily for me, down at the Scripps Institute for Oceanography in La Jolla, California, Dan McKenzie set out to show that Wegener was right. Well, he didn't set out to show that, but he did show that. They laughed at Wegener, or Wegener, depending on what you prefer, because he had no idea how it could be that the continents were floating around on the surface of the Earth. Since they couldn't figure out how that could be, they said, well, that's ridiculous. This would change after the Second World War. In late 1940s, researchers set out on ocean mapping expeditions that led to the discovery of a global system of oceanic ridges. Yes, a mountain range in the middle of most of the world's oceans. They had a curious feature. There was a rift valley surrounded on both sides by mountains. This suggested the possibility that some kind of movement might be taking place. As the Cold War said, in, seismometers were deployed to detect underground nuclear tests. They also spotted earthquakes in specific areas, including along the mid-oceanic ridges. Magnetometers designed to track submarines found patterns of magnetism in the rocks along the mid-Atlantic ridge that suggested crust was forming there and spreading outwards. So, down in La Jolla, Mackenzie began pondering how these plates might be moving around. New Scientist notes that at the time everyone was thinking about what happened at the margins of the plates, no one had worked out how entire plates might move relative to one another. Mackenzie had a stroke of insight. The plates were rigid. The crucial idea was that the interior of the plates did not deform internally, he said. It doesn't seem much, but by treating plates as rigid, it was not possible to think of them as geometric figures, like paving stones on a sphere. He and his colleague Bob Parker realized that the relative motions between two plates could be described by drawing a circle on the planet's surface whose axis goes through its center, an idea that goes back to an 18th century theorem by the Swiss mathematician Lenhard, Leonard Euler. This allowed the pair to calculate the relative motion of the plates in North America. They found it tallied exactly with earthquake activity in the region, showing that their calculations were correct and this movement must not only be happening, but also be the likely cause of earthquakes. It was the last piece of the puzzle. Suddenly, they could not just see the plates shifted, but also that each was moving relative to the other. The entire surface of the earth was covered in rigid plates, jammed up against each other, yet still in motion. Mackenzie and Parker submitted their work to nature, knowing they'd hit on something big. As it happened, they weren't the only ones. They say every idea has its time, and that certainly was true for plate tectonics. Unknown to Mackenzie... Jason Morgan at Princeton University had arrived at exactly the same conclusion and had given a talk on the subject early on in 1967, some months earlier, evidently, than the Nature paper. Morgan 
could even identify three types of plate boundaries, the ridges where new crusts were formed, trenches where crust disappears, and faults where neither disappears nor appears. And the idea of plate tectonics was born. Historians accord ownership to the theory to both Mackenzie and Morgan, but Mackenzie says Morgan has priority. There's no question about it at all. He says Morgan talked about it before I even thought about it. I just didn't know about that. What is indisputable is the geology got transformed in 1967. Nikki White, geologist at the University of Cambridge, said the discovery of plate tectonics completely and profoundly changed the subject. Earthquakes happen when pressure that's building up between moving plates is suddenly released. Volcanoes appear when magma from below Earth's upper mantle rises up at plate boundaries, and mountains form when one plate inexorably crunches into another. The idea of plate tectonics is so obvious in hindsight that we forget it's only 50 years old said geologist Nikki White. The impact was immediate and profound to the extent that I was being taught about it in primary school in Dublin by 1973, which is amazingly fast penetration. The article does note that although plate tectonics explained a lot, some mysteries remained. Not all earthquakes and volcanic eruptions happen at plate boundaries, for example. We now know that plates are not entirely rigid, that their flexure can lead to interplate earthquakes. Also, massive plumes of hot magma rising up from the lower mantle can cause volcanic activity, as in Hawaii. Dan McKenzie is still at work. The magazine published a photo of him in 1967, where he looks to be about, I don't know, 24. They note that he is at Cambridge, working not just on the Earth's crust and upper mantle, but also the tectonics of Mars and Venus. article notes the focus of terrestrial plate tectonics research has shifted to the dynamics of the plate. Do those sinking at the subduction zone stop at the core mantle boundary, or do they go deeper? Knowing that could be a key to understanding the forces driving plate tectonics. Nobody really understands what's going on down there. It's going to be a really big thing, said Mackenzie. And it is very cool to think of how one theory can come along that all of a sudden puts so many of the pieces of the puzzle together. Yet, so many pieces remain. This very same issue of the magazine had the following little blurb in it. We might finally know how ocean-sized deposits of water hundreds of kilometers below Earth's surface are getting there. A form of clay called kaolinite might be soaking up water like a sponge and carrying it deep underground. Kaolinite accounts for 5 to 60% of ocean sediments, depending upon location. Now it seems it can act as an irrigation system for the upper mantle, the hot rock layer that extends from 10 kilometers beneath our feet to more than 400 kilometers. The kaolinite gets sucked down when an oceanic plate collides with continental crust and nosedives beneath it, the process called subduction. Researchers in South Korea simulated the increasing pressure and heat the kaolinite encounters during the descent, and they found that it can absorb huge amounts of water from the surrounding chunks of crust. The huge water content is roughly twice the 14% found in serpentines, previously the most water-rich minerals widely subducted in the mantle. All right, another topic we don't have time to go into at great length today, but I do want to mention because I plan to return to it in the weeks and months to come, concerns psychedelic drugs. New Scientist's cover story from November 25th notes there's an old joke in renewable energy circles. Nuclear fusion is 30 years away and always will be. The magazine notes that's slightly unfair, but it carries a whiff of truth. The breakthrough always seems tantalizingly close, yet it never arrives. If biomedicine has a nuclear fusion of its own, it has to be psychedelic medicine. 
Every few years, there's a surge in scientific interest, followed by breathless proclamations of the long-awaited psychedelic renaissance. The story is always the same. Psychedelic therapy showed huge promise in the 50s, was crushed by the establishment in the 60s, and now is being revived by a group of fearless visionaries. In five years, ten years at most, doctors will routinely be prescribing LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and other psychedelic drugs for a range of conditions. New Scientist notes that it has not been immune to the hype cycle. In 2005, they ran a feature-length article about the imminent revival of psychedelic therapy. At the time, they were promising early results from a range of conditions, including PTSD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and end-of-life anxiety. It may not be long before doctors are prescribing hallucinogens, we said. Well, how long is long? Nearly 13 years on, none of these early trials has delivered on its promise. The research goes on, however, and on the back of encouraging results from clinical trials and brain scans, scientists are again confidently asserting that psychedelics are on a verge of medical approval. This is something we will look at again in the not-too-distant future. I can tell you this. When I was in medical school, one of the most promising drugs uh, that was being talked about was MDMA. Unfortunately, this drug took on the street name of ecstasy and, you know, a few thousand raves later and being made illegal. Well, let's just say MDMA has not lived up to its promise. This has to be seen as unfortunate. Let's talk about something else from the world of medicine that is a little edgy, I guess you might say. An article that appeared in Bloomberg Businessweek was reprinted in the week, which of course we, as you've noticed, rely upon heavily for this program. But the article was titled Inside Fort Botox. And I think this is worth a few minutes of our time. The article notes there's no easy way into Allergan's Botox Laboratories in Irvine, California. But once you're inside, there's no quick way out. First things first, here's a waiver acknowledging that within 18 to 36 hours of entering this secured lab, you could develop symptoms including double vision, difficulty speaking, arm or leg weakness, and eventual paralysis of your respiratory system. Try not to worry. Assume you sign the form and move on. The initial entryway is fitted with keycard-activated doors, beyond which are more doors guarded by pin pads, followed by still more keycard entry points and more pin pads. There are only a few people at work or walking around. Deep inside, behind double-paned windows, are still more glass barriers and finally metal-enclosed workstations. Everything is under video surveillance. All activity is measured and monitored. Guards watch the comings and going from a room filled with banks of screens. All this scrutiny and precaution isn't to protect Allergan's wildly popular drug from competitors, although it is worth protecting. Last year, Botox generated $2.8 billion in sales. The security exists because the drug can take years off a person's appearance by erasing wrinkles and also happens to be made with one of the most toxic substances known to science. It is my recollection that botulinum toxin was formerly listed as the world's most deadly poison in the Guinness Book of World Records. The article confirms that Botox is derived from a toxin purified from Clostridium botulinum, a bacterium that thrives and multiplies in faultily canned food and sometimes prison-made booze. The botulinum toxin is so powerful that a tiny amount, and we mean tiny, can suffocate a person by paralyzing the muscles used for breathing. It is considered one of the world's most deadly potential agents of bioterrorism. 
and is on the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention's select agent list of heavily regulated substances that could, quote, pose a severe threat to public, animal, or plant health, unquote. Because of that, Allegan must report to the CDC if even a speck of the toxin goes missing, and when it's sent to Allegan's manufacturing facility in Ireland, its travels bring to mind a presidential Secret Service operation. It turns out that a baby aspirin-sized amount of powdered toxin is enough to make the global supply of Botox for a year. That little bit is derived from a larger primary source, which is locked down somewhere in the continental U.S. No one who isn't on a carefully guarded list of government and company officials knows exactly where that is. Occasionally, the company won't say how frequently, some of the toxin, the company won't say how much, is shipped in secrecy to the lab in Irvine for research. Even less frequently, a bit of toxin is transported by private jet with guards aboard to a plant in Westport, Ireland. The article claims that scientists differ over how much the toxin would be required to inflict massive damage, because data on the topic is scarce, and that may be intentional, but a study published in 2001 in the Journal of the American Medical Association said that a single gram in crystallized form, evenly dispersed and inhaled, would kill more than a million people. One gram kill a million people. Now, curiously, the mere possibility of a botulism bomb has the U.S. government on edge, and that puts Allergan in a remarkable position. The government's vigilance enhances the company's own security, and together they give Botox a near monopoly that is almost unassailable. Allergan says Botox has more than 90% of the market for medical uses of neurotoxins and 75% of the market for cosmetic uses. David Pyatt, chief executive of the company from 1998 to 2015, said, I used to say, how often do you see that distribution of market share in any category? Not just drugs, just in anything. Adding, people used to laugh and say, I see what you mean, because it's just unheard of. Now, it turns out Botox is largely the brainchild of two scientists, Alan Scott and Ed Shantz. In the 1960s and 70s, Scott, an ophthalmologist, was looking for a treatment for people with strabismus or crossed eyes was more, Chance's focus, on the other hand, was more military than medical. He'd done work purifying the botulinum toxin in the chemical core at Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland, home of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program. Oh, oh, by the way, the United States officially does not manufacture biological weapons. They do grant we have to do a little bit of research into it to know how to defend against them, though. Anyway, Chance apparently left Fort Detrick, went uh, to the University of Wisconsin where he perfected the process of, uh, I guess, crystallizing out the toxin. Dr. Scott requested some of this product from Ed Shantz for its medical uses. And evidently, Shantz sent the stuff in crystallized form to Scott via the U.S. Postal Service in a metal tube slipped inside another metal tube. It was Dr. Scott who turned the toxin into a pharmaceutical. He then formed a company around his breakthrough called Oculinum Inc., and Botox was born as a treatment for strabismus and blepharospasm, or twitchy eyelid. By the way, Botox works by controlling. By the way, Botox works by controlling the release. By the way, Botox works by blocking the release of a chemical that instructs muscles to contract. Your motor nerves send a signal, and the muscle reacts. Unless you involve Botox, after that, it stops reacting. And it's now approved for nine different medical uses, including treatment for chronic migraines, overactive bladders, and severe muscle spasms. But of course, 
Well, it's claimed that 55% of the business of Botox goes for medical treatment, 45% is cosmetic. I rather think that the numbers are reversed. Evidently up in Vancouver, Canada, a husband and wife pair of ophthalmologists and dermatologists stumbled upon Botox's anti-aging properties. Gene Carruthers, the ophthalmologist, was treating a patient with eye spasms. Woman made the observation that these shots would sometimes give her brow a beautiful, untroubled expression. Dr. Alistair Carruthers, the dermatologist of the pair, got involved and, well, the rest is history. Forehead wrinkles were out the window and people were soon seeking a smoother forehead and a refreshed, open, younger expression. And uh, I would note, I'm certainly not a a medical expert on the use of Botox by any stretch of the imagination, but I I have seen the results in people. And while they sometimes do look pretty good, they also sometimes look pretty surprised. Surprised for a month at a time. Anyway, it's it's pretty remarkable to to contemplate that uh, one of the most toxic substances on planet Earth is now largely neutered and immensely valuable and ready to be injected into a wrinkled brow or, or sweaty palm or twitchy, twitchy muscle. Once that facility in Westport, uh, Ireland, uh, creates individual doses for use in your doctor's office, they can just ship it around on FedEx. You, know, you don't need a guarded private jet. And final item for the day. Some people have done the math on this, and they've concluded that Elon Musk's rocket might yet still be able to go after that interstellar asteroid that whipped through the solar is still whipping through the solar system and catch it. Evidently it would take a few years to get to it, and of course how many years is it going to take to build that rocket? I'm not sure. But hey, it would appear that if anybody can do it, it might just be Elon Musk. And no we didn't insert that item just because we like to say Elon Musk. Although we do. That's about it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.